Welcome to Imagine Talks podcast, Achieving Success, Social Impact, and Overcoming Obstacles. I am Francis Kong. And I'm Tammy Tran. And I'm Stephen Chan. And I'm Michelle Sahai. For today's episode, we will be introducing Dr. Stephanie Wong, who is a licensed counseling psychologist at Peninsula Behavioral Health and the VA in Palo Alto, a researcher and an adjunct professor at both the University of San Francisco and New York University. Her work centers on trauma-informed care, identity development, and social justice and therapy, research, teaching, and advocacy with diverse communities. Among Stephanie's many passions, she also works to fight anti-Blackness in the AAPI community through education and awareness. You can find her on Instagram at Psych for the People. Now, without delay, let's welcome Dr. Wong. Hi, Dr. Wong. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here on our podcast. Um, you have such a diverse and uh, various background in um, counseling. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work? Sure. Um, I wear many hats, as you can tell. Um, I think that's one of my favorite parts about being a psychologist. Um, so um, I think generally I'm, I'm a clinician by training. That's something I'm really passionate about is providing um, individual couples and group therapy to folks, um, specifically folks from marginalized communities who regularly wouldn't have access to mental health care. Um, I am also an adjunct professor. So uh, something I'm really, really passionate about is I think bringing anti-racism work into the teaching space. So into counseling and supervision. Um, and I um, and am involved in a few research projects. So uh, writing a book chapter, co-writing a book chapter on sexual trauma um, within the queer community and um, co-writing a book chapter on decolonizing Asian bodies. So a lot of my prior research work um, that kind of got me into this entire field really centered on understanding body image development for Asian American women. So that's um, also a passion of mine. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, I have one question in regards to your interest. Uh, it's, and it's relevant to what's happening today, um, mm -hmm. fighting anti-Blackness. Can you, what is, what does it mean to combat that anti-Blackness in the AAIP community? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think um, has a complicated answer. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think the ways that I have been thinking about it and my thinking has evolved significantly over time. Um, I thought a lot around my positionality, my identity as an Asian American woman and conversations around race and racism um, specifically racism toward black and brown communities in the U.S. and thought a lot about what did that what did that look like for me growing up in the Bay Area. Um, I grew up in a time here when I think the the colorblind myth was very prevalent. So I grew up in an environment in which I didn't see race and I didn't realize how much of a huge privilege that was until um, I moved away from the Bay Area and started becoming a part of different communities that were not filled with people that looked like me. Um, and I think it was really through uh, my master's at Teachers College, I took a course by Dr. 
Daryl Wing Sue called microaggressions. And that course was seriously life-changing for me where I suddenly um, realized that there was language for all of these experiences that folks with marginalized identities were experiencing and kind of dove a lot more into um, taking courses by Dr. Robert Carter, who like really was at the forefront of racial identity theory and racial, um, racial development to try and understand like what was the history of racism in the US and in what ways is that showing up today? When I was in my master's and doctoral programs, I, I think we were in this really interesting time in the US when uh, I think with the election of President Obama, a lot of folks were thinking like, you know, look, we have a black man as a president everyone is totally fine with race. We don't need to talk about racism. Racism is a dirty word. Let's put it away. That's not part of polite conversation. And I think we saw um, the conversation drastically shift with the election of Donald Trump, right? Uh, where suddenly I think that gave a lot of, the dialogue and the rhetoric of the Trump administration gave a lot of uh, openings and validation almost of white supremacy and white supremacy culture. Um, so this is kind of a long roundabout way <laughs> of saying, I think a lot of, a lot of my studies and work had really culminated and, and been pushed. I had been really, really challenged um, last summer with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, so many unnamed folks from the black and brown communities to really examine uh, what was I actively doing within my own positions of privilege as a psychologist, as somebody who has access to mental health care, who provides mental health care? Am I actually, I think, pushing myself in my roles to um, advocate for, for different communities? Am I actually embodying what it means to be an ally um, or work toward allyship, what it means to be a part of social justice? And um, the difficult answer for me to come to was no, I was being silent in a lot of ways. And I was having a lot of these conversations within safe communities. So communities of other mental health professionals, other folks who were kind of within my bubble of um, holding the same values. And I wanted to really push beyond that and be really explicit around uh, we as a community, as a society need to fight, actively fight anti-Blackness in the U.S. because that and white supremacy are really at the root of a lot of the things that we're seeing today. Um, hopefully that answered <laughs> some of the oh, questions. Definitely. It definitely answered um, the question. And I have a couple follow-up questions to what yeah. you said. Um, first was um, the clarification of what is colorblind myth that you mentioned in the yeah. beginning. Yeah. So yeah. Colorblind myth is really this, um, there's probably others who will describe it much more eloquently. I can say how it showed up for me in my own experience. It really is this myth that um, I don't see color. All lives matter is part of that as well, right? Some of those sentiments around, why can't we just treat everyone equally, right? Um, it's this myth of sameness that I think does a disservice to these beautiful and rich ways in which we are all so different, right? This tags on to uh, conversations, I think, emerging now for a lot of folks around intersectionality, 
that is a intersectionality was put forth by a lot of like black feminist scholars originated with Kimberly Crenshaw and really spoke to the value of seeing difference. So it worked directly against colorblindness where it said, how can I hold people in all of their complexities with all of the different identities they bring, right? I am not only Asian, I'm not only American, I am not only a woman, um, I am so many other things and I would like to be considered as a full person rather than just another human being um, whose history and whose life is doesn't matter, right? Um, that is kind of how, yeah, how I thought about colorblindness. <laughs> uh, that, that actually speaks true to a lot of the things that I feel too as a fellow Asian American um, and everything that I've seen that's been happening so far in the past several months actually. And so what, what, you, what you're saying actually resonates with me um, very much. Um, the, follow the other follow-up question I have for you um, is what does allyship mean to you personally? And what does it mean for you to be a good ally to other marginalized communities? Yeah, great question and like huge question. Um, so rein me in if I talk too long about it. Um, this, this was such a recent, right, again, this like recent journey for me, I really credit a lot to the work that folks have done in the Black Lives Matter movement in like pushing me to seek out resources and lean on the wisdom, the like collective wisdom of communities before me um, to really understand what this means for me. So ally in psychological research, right, usually it's defined as members of dominant groups who build relationships with and take stands against the oppression of members of non-dominant groups. Mm -hmm. So if we break that down, right, members of dominant groups, um, dominant referring to any piece of your identity that holds power or that is deemed uh, worthy or of value in US society, right? So mm -hmm. typically we think of dominant group members as folks who uh, are white, cisgender, heterosexual, temporarily able-bodied, right? Uh, I think middle to high socioeconomic status. So those are members of the dominant groups who build relationships with and take stands against the oppression of members of non-dominant groups. So non-dominant mm -hmm. meaning anyone who holds identities that are not considered normative, right? anyone who holds identities that are often invisible. Um, so we think of folks who identify as disabled, folks who identify as black, brown, indigenous, uh, person of color, trans, queer, women, right? Anyone who has historically experienced some type of, I mean, truly disenfranchisement as a result of their identities. So, um, that is like the base definition of ally that I operated from. And as I read more into the research, um, I kind of stumbled across this like brilliant research article written by Keith Edwards, who I think at the time was a doctoral student um, at the University of Maryland in College Park. And Keith talks about um, ally identity development, which really resonated for me. So there's these like three stages of working toward allyship. Um, and working toward, I would say, effective allyship, right? Um, so the first is 
and I so identify with this at the beginning of my own work. The first is um, aspiring allies for self-interest. What this looked like for me was I, I have always thought of myself as an ally um, in kind mm -hmm. of a naive way without fully understanding. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm here for diversity. I'm here for social justice conversations. I'm here for multiculturalism because, um, and this was so born out of self-interest because I was like, I have friends who've dealt with this. I have direct contact with people who have um, suffered at the hands of white supremacy and racism, right? That's where the self-interest piece comes in. And it's kind of this, I think of it, um, as like a naive standpoint around like, just because it's like, well, I have this one black friend, therefore I'm an ally, right? And I'm gonna jump in to protect them at any point in time, whether or not they asked for it, right? Um, the second stage that we move to, so from self-interest is to aspiring allies for altruism, right? So um, these folks are primarily motivated to ally um, to start dealing with the guilt and shame that comes up with recognizing their own unearned privilege. Mm -hmm. I really think of this, for me, this showed up um, when I was in grad school. Um, I think I was learning about all these concepts. I was starting to unpack like, ooh, here's ways in which my identity, I'm part of dominant groups. Here's ways that I'm part of non-dominant groups. Mm. Um, I feel so guilty and ashamed because there's a lot of ways in which I was born into some privileged identities, right? And so in an effort to kind of rectify that or like work against it, um, what I end up doing is saying like, no, I'm one of the good ones. I'm working really hard over here. Those people over there are, are racist. I'm working here in my own sphere and I'm not racist, right? So it's this kind of othering of yourself um, in an effort to protect against this guilt and shame that is so common and comes up, right? Um, the third stage is that I think I'm like continually aspiring to, I don't know that there's ever like an end goal, <laughs> um, but it's, it's called moving towards allies for social justice, right? Allies for social justice intentionally collaborate and partner with folks who hold um, non-dominant or oppressed identities, right? They, they recognize that all people are harmed by oppression. It's not just the group that happens to have experienced the mass shooting. It's not just the group that um, has certain members who um, have been, are killed for running down the street, right? When that person is harmed, actually harms all of us as a community including folks from dominant groups, right? And so I, this was something that I only started working toward, I will say in a concerted way within the last few years. And um, it's been so humbling, I think. Um, I think we, it's human nature to wanna to think of ourselves as good people and like with good intentions. And I think we are, and there's more to be done. Um, allyship is this continual process and it's not something that we get a certificate or a stamp for at the end of it. Allyship um, is something is not something that we title ourselves. I never say, I'm Dr. Wong, I'm Stephanie, the ally, right? Yes. That, is, that is a title, that is a label that I might, that someone from the group that I'm trying to ally with may grant me or may not. 
they may look at my efforts and say, that's actually not aligned with the thing that may help us the most. I'm like, oh gosh, okay, I'm so sorry. Let's dial back, let's collaborate. Let's figure out something that feels more aligned for you. Um, yeah, I think the bottom line here for me that I've operated from is like, we are always choosing allyship. It is a active choice. And um, I think sometimes we mess up Sometimes I mess up and I realize that some sort of action of mine is actually coming from self-interest or it's coming from this lofty view of altruism um, and it's not actually coming from a social justice place. And the work there is just like granting yourself the space and compassion to say like, you know what, that wasn't actually aligned with my values or this group's values. Let's recalibrate and continue on. <laughs> That makes sense, you know, and Dr. Wong, you know, you also have co-launched an Instagram account as part of this uh, a, a way to teach people about some of the concepts that you've just mm -hmm. described, the allyship, mm -hmm. as well as the diff three different segments. So in a moment, I, uh, later on, I, was, we, I think we'd all love to hear about what inspired you to start that and your experience with that. But first, you know, wanted to also mention, you know, we are in a, such a pivotal time mm -hmm. in the Asian American collective experience. And since the events in Georgia on March 16th, 2021, yeah. many young Americans have expressed feelings of frustration, helplessness and anger. And how would you address these individuals? What advice might you give them for turning their strong emotions into activism and are there any resources that you could potentially recommend for yeah. self-education? Yeah, such an important question. And I think I, I want to acknowledge that like I'm in still actively in my own like grieving and processing space. And I think that they're like first to folks who are feeling anything or feeling nothing about what happened in Atlanta um, about the murders in Atlanta, I think I just want to offer like some sort of space of validation or normalization that um, everything folks are feeling is so valid. Um, and I have spoken with so many people, particularly folks within the Asian American Pacific Islander community about this and heard such a diversity of, of reactions to this. There's this deep grief and sadness and anger and uh, powerlessness. And there's some folks I've talked to too, who are like, I can't even begin to approach processing that. It is just not something that I can do right now. And that is equally okay and valid. Um, I think I, I, I certainly went through this last week of, of not knowing how to turn my strong emotions into activism and was talking uh, with a friend just around like, I just feel so, like what is this all for the things that we've been working for if these things keep happening to not only our community but black communities, native communities. Like I, I just, I, I think something important there is to like allow room for the strong emotions that come up. And um, for me, some sort of like self-affirmation of like, it's okay to actually step back and take care of yourself for a little bit before we can turn it into action. Um, I think there's a lot of incredible power in being 
versus doing. Um, and that in and of itself can be a subversive action when white supremacy culture tells us, just jump to the next thing, stay professional, don't feel anything, move to the next thing. I think there's so much power in saying, you know what, I am feeling all the things. I need to step back and I need to take space for myself and then I'm gonna show up for other people when I am ready. Um, so that is kind of the first piece of it. The second is, um, I think there are so many, I think this is like the beauty of social media that I have found so many amazing resources through social media um, that I never even, I, I would have had a hard time finding on my own. Um, so some of those, right, so Stop AAPI Hate, the Asian American Psychological Association has offered really incredible resources for folks. Um, there, a friend actually just shared this with me yesterday, um, the Building AAPI Collective Power Resource Guide. Um, you can actually just Google it, right? So Googling things like Asian American Healing Spaces, Asian American Comprehensive Resource Guide, like Google is your friend in this instance. Um, and so many people have put in so much incredible, incredible work um, into compiling a lot of these things. Um, I think something here that has been grounding for me too is like remembering like this is white supremacy as a result, like this is part of a larger system and don't lose sight of the larger system that needs to be dismantled. For such a large system to be dismantled, we need to rely on collective community resources and healing um, in whatever way that looks like for folks. And I think um, activism looks so different um, depending on your emotional, physical, and financial resources. On some days, maybe activism looks like reaching out to a friend and saying like, hey, I'm just thinking of you. How are you? Um, for others, activism can look like donating $5 to a GoFundMe page for one of the people impacted by the Atlanta shooting, right? Um, I, I think I know I can get really scared to engage in activism because I build it up in my head. It's like, it has to be this huge thing. I have to go to a march. I have to like post everything on all of my pages and say something. And sometimes it can look like much smaller actions than that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I certainly resonate with that too. Sometimes I wonder to myself, um, am, you know, what am I doing exactly? Yeah. Am I doing enough? Uh, or is yeah. there, or is there a perfect way to do this? Is there yeah. a right way to do this? Totally. And then cer certainly with those feelings of, you know, why is, is this, why does this keep happening? Um, yeah. Especially after, gosh, a century, a, a lot, a lot mm -hmm. of civil rights activism and this yeah. is still going on, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that you said, like, am I doing enough? Is there, is there a right way to be an activist? Is there per like, maybe there's this image of a perfect activist. And that's something that I just wanna name as like, that, that those are the little things that we catch that are white supremacy telling us, you're not enough, no matter what you do, it's mm -hmm. not enough. And there's this standard you have to reach, right? That is a, that's, that's not true at all in practice. It's the, these small, individual and collective actions um, that then create like this wave of activism. And um, 
what you are doing simply by like living in your experience is enough and can be enough. Um, and there can be more that you can do when you feel able, right? Um, and I just want to acknowledge, like I struggle with that question, those questions, those thoughts every day. <laughs> um, so, yeah. You mentioned a few resources and we'll also show highlight the resources that you've also co-created and mm -hmm. uh, we'll just briefly show it on screen. You know, one yeah. of these is stop AAPI hate. And then I think you also mentioned the American yeah. or Asian American yep. Psychological Association. Is that yep. right? Yeah. And, and then finally, your Instagram, which yeah. is psych for F O R, the people. Yeah. Uh, what inspired you to create, uh, uh, create psych for the people? And what are you thinking of um, uh, hoping to achieve with, with this? Uh, quite comprehensive account? Yeah, such a good question. And I just want to acknowledge too, um, this looks the way it does because, and like sounds the way it does largely too, because of uh, Dr. Marissa Floro, who I co-created this with, who's a very dear friend and colleague. Um, I think, you know, this really started after she and I had uh, so many conversations around um, what do we, it was that question of what do we do? Are we doing enough as psychologists um, to really contribute to anti-racism? Like what, what does that look like? In what ways are we actually by being, um, I know for myself by being historically only quiet or like only bringing up anti-racism within safe spaces, spaces that felt um, warm and welcoming to me, like within training spaces, uh, in what ways is that actually contributing to the perpetuation of racism, right? Um, and the continued silencing of this conversation. And um, I had thought a lot around like, you know, there's so many amazing things that I've learned from psychology research that I've been able to access because of graduate school. Graduate school taught me um, how to look at a research paper and kind of take the really important things from it and turn it into something that felt applicable. And I wanted to be able to share that uh, with other folks who might be interested because there's actually, like none of these concepts are new. Racism, um, allyship, uh, intersectionality, none of this is new. And yet um, I know for a lot of folks who are not necessarily within psych or any you know, affiliated field, it feels new. And the language feels um, at times inaccessible. So I think it was really born out of wanting to deconstruct some of that and turn it into things that can be useful takeaways for folks to start applying to their own lives and their own journey toward um, anti-racism and allyship. Um, and you know, this was this was really, I think, born out of like upholding three specific values, right? So um, we wanted to increase access to psychology research to inform what we call cultural humility. Um, so that looks like kind of increasing people's ability to self-reflect on their own cultural identity and to expand their openness to other cultural identities. So that was kind of one of the pillars that we wanted to put forth here. Another is to help people 
um, really think about their social justice values. So helping folks maybe identify some guiding values that can promote equity, inclusion and participation and access for everybody. So in a lot of these different posts, we have right, a learning section in the caption and then there's a reflecting section. So questions you can ask yourself to kind of further some of your own, uh, your own practice if you choose to engage in that. Um, and then the third here is um, anti-racist activism, right? So identifying and eliminating racism by challenging racist policies and ideas and explicitly supporting anti-racist policies and ideas. Um, so just like, again, kind of breaking that silence and that like politeness protocol that we have around, don't talk about race, don't talk about religion, don't talk about sex, don't talk about that stuff at the dinner table. What we wanna do is provide some language for folks so that you can talk about it with your communities, with your loved ones. So it doesn't feel like such a scary topic uh, that uh, prohibits you from participating in social justice. I love how accessible it is. First off, it's very, very, um, it meets people where they're at. So many people use Instagram and uh, oftentimes for entertainment. And yet this is very, very, such a pertinent topic. It's educational and also helps us put our feelings into words and our experiences into words. Yeah. And what has the response been like so far for, for, for you and um, uh, for this account? Yeah, um, it's been, I guess part of me, I don't know, maybe other folks feel this when they start social media stuff or like anything new. Um, I think Dr. Floro and I had been talking and we're like, you know, hopefully some people, if this even reaches like 20 people, that would be really cool. If somebody can read one of the posts and just like turn it over in their head and think about how that fits into their life, um, that would be really awesome. And I think what has been humbling has just been like the feedback we have gotten around folks. Um, and some of them are like family members for me who have contacted me and been like, wow, I didn't know that you were doing this. I also hadn't ever thought about this necessarily, but this is really cool because it gives me language to start even recognizing ways in which racism pops up in my life. And um, that has just been so awesome. Um, I, I am not, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of Instagram to um, chase down the algorithm and like make it a viral account. So that's never really been the intention. It's more so just, can I even like, can we even reach one person and have them start thinking about race and um, like kind of breaking down some of that barrier between research and practice? Like, can we just make it feel a little bit more within folks reach that they, there's actually a lot of things you can start doing on your own um, that like count as activism. I love that. Dr. Wong, you also mentioned that you'd hope to have this message spread. And I'd like to remind our viewers that you too can uh, add yourself to Psych for the People. You already have yeah. over a thousand followers yeah. and over a thousand followers. And this has only been in existence for how long? Um, I think since July or August of last year about. Yeah. Um, and this is, and, and I think what's been 
pretty cool is that a lot of this is really like a snowball, like community effect. Cause we're not, you know, Dr. Flora and I both hold like wear many hats and do a lot of different things. And so I don't know that um, I haven't been promoting it probably as much as Instagram would want me to. <laughs> um, and so that, that has been really cool because it feels like an organic growth of people who are really interested um, in learning more. And certainly you mentioned making the language accessible, making the yeah. concepts accessible and giving people a great first step into yeah. being an activist themselves. One of these you, I wanted to highlight, one of these certainly caught our team's attention was the AAPI Fighting Anti-Blackness Guide. Yeah. And if you click on this, uh, not only does it link to a very, very aw awesome four page, uh, I think it's four pages, right? PDF, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But, uh, four or five page, pages, sorry. Um, at the, at one of the, there's so many, it's, it's so accessible. I, I read this and uh, I loved the conversation guide Yeah. on common anti-Black statements, possible responses, and along with, if you're interested for the reading too, mm -hmm. uh, how did you put this together? It's, it's, are these common things that people say in the AAPI community yeah. or are these things that That's, you've heard privately? Yeah, such a great question. Um, I, you know, again, like so credit um, Dr. Floro too, because she brought this project to me and asked me if I wanted to collaborate. And I was like, of course, this sounds really important and amazing. And I think as Dr. Flora and I were talking about it, um, you know, race talks, so talking about race and racism is actually um, not something super common for the Asian American Pacific Islander community, right? Race talks are, a lot of research has indicated, are more common for folks who identify as Black or African American, right? There's a, there's a normative growing up conversation that parents or caregivers tend to have with kids and say, listen, because of the color of your skin, you may be treated this way. Here's how, here's what to watch out for. Here's how you can handle it. Those are such, those are necessary talks for folks who are black in the United States because of the violence that is, is a very real threat any anywhere within their homes, outside of their homes, in schools, in communities, right? For the Asian American community, um, these talks, at least to my knowledge, and I definitely could be wrong, um, but these are not as common, um, partly because um, the type of discrimination and oppression we face is different than those of folks who, who are in the black community. The violence is, is different, right? Um, so a lot of these, um, a lot of these initial statements, right? I agree with Black Lives Matter, but I don't like the, the looting. You know, Dr. Flora and I had talked a lot about this and we, were, we had just kind of come up with this running list um, and pulled from other resources too, who had created sort of similar adjacent guides around what are things that we usually hear from our parents, from our friends, from clients, from students, right? And then what are the toughest ones that are, that are there for us to answer and what are some ways that we can start to have a conversation about it um, that feel safe that feel and even if they don't feel necessarily safe or comfortable that feel brave right and that can push along 
um, this conversation within our community. So that was that was kind of where it originated, and um, just like so, I think grateful to Dr. Floor for like bringing me onto that project. This is great, and I I think that these are some things that maybe people think about but don't know yeah. how to say within yeah. not just their family but their friends and their communities. Yeah. So I certainly would encourage our viewers and our listeners to look at this conversation guide. Some of the quotes uh, include, but I'm Asian, I can't be racist, or we're all human, all lives matter. And certainly what, you know, thing, and one other one that's interesting to me is this country has given us so much, why should I protest? And Mm -hmm. it really, really is great because you make it so accessible. Uh, One of the things we were also curious about, like, is the ideal world. Uh, And let's say there's an ideal world. How do you see the Asian American community interacting with one another in an ideal world, interacting with one another and other minority groups? Yeah. (laughs) I will caveat my ideal world is so colored by me being a psychologist. So like, I love feelings and open dialogues about everything, (laughs) Um, which may not be everyone's ideal world, I will admit. Um, I I think, I know for me, my ideal that we can get to as as a community, as a country really is having those tough conversations um, and being able to come from a place of curiosity and learning and respecting each other's differences, um, right? So not painting over uh, somebody's identities by saying, all lives matter, we're all human. You know, there's nothing to worry about. Let's just treat each other the same. I actually don't think that in my ideal world that I dream of um, is that we acknowledge everybody's differences and that um, we, I don't know, not that it's not a big deal, um, but (laughs) just that like we can let, we can come to peace with like that person is gonna live their life this way because of their identities that they inhabit. And that's okay, I wanna allow space for that. Um, I think that that would be so beautiful. And I know that there's such a long way to go for us to have these conversations um, because it brings up so much strong emotions for people understandably. Um, And, you know, my, again, like the big picture that I try to think of, especially for uh, as identifying as part of the Asian American community is remembering like the, the big thing for us to kind of focus on, build awareness about deconstruct, dismantle, um, decolonize, right? Is white supremacy culture. It is not like, oh, well, let me get stuck on well, when did, when did black people show up for the Asian American community? When did the queer community show up for the Asian American community? This like tit for tat kind of um, pitting against each other. My hope is that folks can re- really remember and internalize, right? Like none of us are free until all of us are free. And so what happens to another community is linked to me, it is connected to me. It's not separate. It's not like a lone wolf thing. It's not that, it's that that the hurt you experience is the hurt I experience. 
So let's collaborate and work together so that we can dismantle this system that is kind of, it's impacting all of us so negatively, including folks in the white community, right? Yeah, and you know, I think that leads, lead, that certainly leads us to our final question with you um, is parting thoughts and parting advice for young Asian Americans who are entering the mental health space, either they are seeking treatment or they're hoping to provide it. What advice would you have to give for such young Asian Americans? Yeah, um, I think, right, first, no matter if you are seeking it or you're providing it, I think remembering ways in which the mental health space um, has been a, a white space, a colonized space for so long. And there's so, even just the structure of our mental health system, right? Like you gotta wade through a ton of different profiles. You have to figure out how to find a therapist. You have to figure out what therapy even is. You Maybe you'll see somebody with certain degrees, who knows what that means, right? So I think acknowledging like the mental health space is a tough space that we are actively working to decolonize and make more accessible. Um, so it's it's just, I think, to like have your expectations set at that level. Um, so for folks seeking mental health, I think I try to really acknowledge like, listen, it can feel overwhelming at first. And for young Asian Americans who are seeking maybe mental health for the first time, please don't be afraid to ask questions. Whenever um, I end up talking with folks who are like trying to determine if therapy feels like a fit, I try to re remind people, this is so important that you fit with your therapist. Please don't be afraid to ask questions about what are your identities? What work have you done on your identities? How do you think you might be able to support me as an Asian American? right, if you hold the same or different identities. Those are questions that I hope any culturally aware, culturally sensitive clinician can respond to thoughtfully, right? Um, and I think for students or young professionals who are coming up in the field, um, again, continuing to think about ways in which mental health has contributed and reinforced racial inequity in this country. And um, thinking about who is highlighted in all of my textbooks? Who are these research articles by? Who are the gatekeepers of these institutions? Um, the spoiler alert is that it's often white, cisgender, heterosexual men of middle or upper class status, right? Not always, but usually those are the voices prioritized or the perspectives prioritized. Um, and then the question becomes, how do I start critically decolonizing my own study um, to create spaces of liberation rather than continuing spaces of oppression while acknowledging I may mess up along the way and that's okay and there are things I can do to repair and that repair is the mo more important thing not the not making mistakes. And certainly I think that giving us permission and the invitation mm -hmm to explore this area without the expectation of perfectionism or yeah. that there's a specific right way to go about it is extremely helpful as we're like going through um, this overwhelming, can be overwhelming certain time and overwhelming subject. Um, yeah. You know, I, I wanted to see if um, 
there's so much to unpack with what you said, mm-hmm. all these concepts of decolonization, white supremacy, etc. I feel like we need to get you back on another podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we'd love to have you back on our show yeah. and our, our series in the future. So yeah, I would um, love that. Yeah. And there is, there's so much information out there. So I can certainly appreciate that. <laughs> Dr. Wong, if folks wanted to learn more about your work and mm-hmm. wanted to find out any of sort of the work that you've produced or, or your, the concepts that you've talked about, how can they find you online? Yeah, um, I think the, the best way at this point is to go through Psych for the People um, especially if people have any questions about that, we try our best to highlight um, the work that myself and Dr. Flora are actively doing, as well as the uh, trying to really highlight and give voice to the incredible work other folks have done as well um, to, I think, just give folks the space that they deserve. Um, so I think that is probably the best way at this point. That's wonderful, Dr. Wong. Again, yeah. that's on Instagram at Psych for the People, P-S-Y-C-H-F-O-R, the people. Thank you so much for joining us this episode uh, with Dr. Stephanie Wong. To learn more about Imagine Talks, go to www.imaginetalks.org. Edge Interns and Mental Power Hacks support this podcast. Edge Interns sources the best interns to the best companies. Learn more at E-D-G-E, that's edgeinterns.com. Mental Power Hacks is where you'll get life hacks to boost your mental performance, productivity, and success. Connect at mentalpowerhacks.com. Subscribe to us and get the latest episodes of Imagine Talks podcast, Achieving Success, Social Impact Over Upcoming Obstacles. See you all next episode.